I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Forma, the audio companion of formerjournal.com and a podcast featuring conversations with authors, teachers, creators, and leaders that are carefully contemplating the intersection of classical thought and contemporary culture. I'm David Kern. For this episode, I spoke with Dr. Jeremy Begbie about his book, A Peculiar Orthodoxy, Reflections on Theology and the Arts. Dr. Begbie is Thomas A. Langford Research Professor of Theology at Duke Divinity School. He previously served as Honorary Professor of Theology at the University of St. Andrews, Associate Principal of Ridley Hall, Cambridge, and Affiliated Lecturer in the Faculty of Divinity at the University of Cambridge. A noted pianist, Begbie has lectured widely in the UK, the US, and South Africa, and he's the author of Resounding Truth, Christian Wisdom in the World of Music, Voicing Creation's Praise Towards the Theology of the Arts, and Theology, Music, and Time. He also edited Beholding the Glory, Incarnation Through the Arts, and also Sounding the Depths, Theology Through the Arts. As the book's jacket says, Dr. Begbie has been at the forefront of teaching and writing on theology and the arts for more than 20 years. Amid current debates and discussions on the topic, Begbie emphasizes the role of a biblically grounded creedal orthodoxy as he shows how Christian theology and the arts can enrich each other. He explains the importance of critically examining key terms, concepts, and thought patterns commonly employed in theology arts discourse today, arguing that notions such as beauty and sacrament are too often adopted uncritically without due attention given to how an orientation to the triune God's self-disclosure in Christ might lead us to reshape and invest these notions with fresh content. Throughout a peculiar orthodoxy, Dr. Begbie demonstrates the power of classic Trinitarian faith to bring illumination, surprise, and delight wherever it engages with the arts. End quote. This is a profound, thought-provoking, and challenging book, and I highly recommend it. I encourage you to go get a copy. It is out now from Baker Academic. Dr. Begbie and I spoke about um, where his love of music came from, how he came to be a Christian, and uh, where his studies began, uh, as well as some of the questions that he raises in the book. So without further ado, this is my interview with Dr. Jeremy Begbie about his book, A Peculiar Orthodoxy. Enjoy. Well, again, thank you for being here. And where did you grow up in, in the UK? I grew up in Edinburgh. I was brought up in Scotland. I went to school in Edinburgh, high school in Edinburgh, then university in Edinburgh. So although I've lost the accent, I'm very much a Scot by background. Hmm. Now that's a, a place that seems to be renowned to some degree, at least for the sort of quality of the education that can be found there, at least from a higher education at the university level. Now, maybe that's just the perspective of an outsider American who just hears the word and thinks, oh, fancy college. <laughs> Is that, was that something that you were surrounded by? Well, no, we like, we, we like, we like to think of it as a, as, a, as a great country for education. And it has four, four ancient universities, Glasgow, Edinburgh, St. Andrews and Aberdeen, and many others actually as well. But those big four are, I suppose, very famous. And yes, for some reason, it's pushed education very much um, to the fore of things. It, it's a major concern of the nation and has been for a long time. Was that something that as you were growing up and um, coming into your own and starting your career that was, I don't, I don't know exactly if the word is 
if haunting is the right word, but which uh, drove you, which motivated you? Yes, I think it probably is. I hadn't thought of that before, but my father was a physiologist mm. at the university. He taught in the medical school there. So although he was medically trained, he went into teaching mm. and he was a born teacher. Um, my mother too, uh, although she wasn't a teacher, she instilled in me a love of learning. They were both avid readers. They were very well educated in, in the arts, in the visual arts and in music. And suppose I just picked up a kind of love of learning and inquiry and a desire to pass that on to others from as early as I can remember. I loved to be able to teach things um, and, and, and to pass on something that I'd found that was exciting. Hmm. Where did your love of music come from? Love of music came from my mother. I used to sit underneath the piano as she played away uh, when mm. I was very young. And as soon as I could make any noise on the instrument of myself, I did and just fell in love with music from the beginning. I never had to be um, to coaxed into playing or practicing. Mm. It was just, it, it was, uh, I just seemed to be made for music and music for me. Hmm. Did you, what did you play as a child? I played a piano. Um, like most kids, I started when I was seven. I had a very good teacher. I think the first teacher of a musical instrument is a very, very critical person because you can put mm. off a person for life very quickly mm. uh, <laughs> if you're a bad teacher. And mm. I, there are many casualties of that that I met. And also I've met many casualties where someone's been told as a child that they can't sing or that they're unmusical. And they find later in adult life, in fact, they are. It's just that they've lived with that condemnation sort of hanging over them from a, a careless teacher of the past. So piano was the first instrument. And then when I was about 11 or 12, I started the oboe, woodwind instrument, and kept those going right through high school and into university. Or do you still play regularly? I don't play the oboe. I play the piano regularly, yes. I perform quite a bit, and I do uh, performance lectures quite often where I will both speak and play. And I found that's a very... It seems to be, for people who receive it, seems to be a powerful way of teaching. People seem to get the point sometimes much more quickly if I play as well as speak. Music has a way of circumventing a lot of objections, particularly to Christian faith, I find. Huh. It gets to people's heart very quickly. Mm, that's interesting. And I think educationally, that's, uh, that's an important thing to bear in mind. Do you think that it's because it in some ways can, because it can incarnate the ideas that you're trying to express, it can eliminate some of the confusion that can, that can arise through definition, say, just un, a different understanding of words. I think that's a, that's a good way of putting it. Um, it can make definitions come alive. That's the way I put it, particularly mm -hmm. with something like the Trinity or the incarnation or the great doctrines. Music, it's not that the doctrines are to be denied, but that people sometimes can't appropriate them Hmm. and make them own until they hear them in another mode. Hmm. And music is often that mode. And that's why we sing hymns. That's why we go to Handel's Messiah. That's why we go to a U2 concert and hear psalms. And suddenly yeah. these, these ancient texts come alive in, in fresh ways. Um, hmm. And that's, you know, no, music does seem to have that power. And for others, it'll be images, you know, another art form. Until they've seen it and they've seen it pictured, they can't believe it quite. So, you know, I think music is very powerful in that respect and has always been. Hmm. It strikes me that in some of the more ancient Christian traditions, well, I guess I don't want to be too fine about how exactly what I'm, you know, what I'm talking about there, but it strikes me that early on, there was always the sort of 
finding a balance between the images and the music. For example, in Eastern mm. Orthodoxy, there's still, and in Catholicism to some degree, there's still the, um, you have the icons and the hymns, and you know, as part of the liturgy, both, you know, there, there's yeah. a very physical manifestation of what the worship is trying to express. Um, and yeah, and it seems like maybe in, in the West, we've, I don't know if it's a product of the enlightenment, but um, we've seemed to veer away from the physical manifestation of the ideas that we're trying to express as if it's some sort of uh, idol worship in some ways. I don't know if maybe that's an American thing though. You know, you hear that a lot with images in churches. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I, I think it's, it's, it's also alive in, in my own country in the okay. UK and certainly been alive in Scotland, which had a, sure, okay. you know, a you know, much more direct Protestant kind of influence. No, I think within. I think it goes back way before the Enlightenment. I think it's certainly it's there's something in the Protestant ethos that mm. is that is suspicious and anxious, particularly about visual manifestations and images, and frankly, sometimes for very good reasons. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I often defend Protestantism on on this front. That Calvin's point about or anxiety about images of God, among other things, was that if once you, or, or images of Jesus, perhaps a better example is that once you've got a particular picture of Jesus in your mind, it's very hard to eradicate it, and you mm. become a kind of prisoner to that image. Mm. Um, and I think, I think it's a very valuable point. Um, I can remember vividly now pictures of Jesus I had when I was growing up as a child, which I've shown, which still haunt me now, and I still often <laughs> see him in that light. And that may not be, they may not necessarily be inaccurate or wrong, but if that's all I have, you sure. become sort of captive to that, and then you can't read the text in a way that might, um, when it's trying to kind of disturb that image and you might need that image disturbing sometimes. Hmm. So I think Protestantism had a point there, but the trouble is it's overreacted sometimes and almost suggests that any kind of uh, image representation, uh, visual representation of say Jesus is a kind of sin in itself. And that's going too far, I think. And, and, but, but so that's the kind of Protestant impulse within the Catholic tradition, of course, in the Orthodox tradition, they've been, much less suspicious. And if you go to an Orthodox service, you're getting a multimedia presentation. I mean, <laughs> you're getting the smell of the incense, you're getting the sights, you're getting the, indeed, you, you touch the icons very often, you kiss them often, um, and not to mention the extraordinary visual display, and you're getting ritual and gesture and movement and all these things. Um, and that was a kind of total multi-sensory um, experience of, 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 they believe, what, what, you know, what, what the gospel is about and what the Christian faith is about. Mm, it, there's a sort of dance to that. The, the, the That's a very good way of putting it. I mean, ri uh, yeah, a, a ritual is a kind of dance. I think Protestants also need to, to wear that very often they're doing the same. They just don't talk about it like that. So within the Church of Scotland, you quite often get the Bible processed up the middle by the the beadle or the elder or whatever, up the middle aisle. You'll Very often the design of, of Protestant churches uh, very much spells a theological message. Uh, with a pulpit, you know, very, very high up and um, with stairs leading up on each side of whatever. So these physical things make a, a big difference. Not the Protestants don't have any idea of, of physicality. They're just a little less, course, yeah. they're a little less uh, um, open about admitting it and about the effect those things are having. Mm. What was you, when you were a child, what was your, um, ch what were your church experiences like? And, and did some of your, did some of the beginnings of your your contemplation of that sort of the intersection of theology and the arts begin um, with those experiences as a child? That's interesting. Well, my mother was a churchgoer. My father was, but drifted away during my childhood. And I, I got taken to church a little bit when I was very young. 
but certainly didn't stick at it. And so right through my teens or whatever, I had no interest in, in going to church and very little knowledge of the Christian faith. Um, like many kids, I suppose, you know, it was, uh, I had a vague knowledge of the Bible, but nothing detailed. I never really read any of the Bible at any length. Hmm. Um, the church that we did go to from time to time was a church outside the village where we lived in, near Edinburgh called Roslyn, Roslyn Chapel, which became famous through the Da Vinci Code, uh, <laughs> which was a, a very dr- dramatic and ornate building, which I suppose did have a bit of an effect on me visually. What style was it? That was kind of gothic. That okay. that, that was uh, one of the, the buildings that survived the, the Reformation. Mm. And it was extraordinary, ornate sculpture. Was it was it sort of haunting? Yeah, very haunting. Very haunting. That's a good way of putting it. It did haunt me, and I go back pretty regularly now. Um, there was also a community of monks living in Roslyn who I got to know a bit, even long before I was interested in Christian faith. And they, they definitely had an impact on me in the way they lived, their hospitality, their obvious witness for Christ, and their life of prayer. And I didn't really understand what was going on, but it definitely had an impact on me. It's something I couldn't dismiss. Hmm. Um, but no, music was a thing. I, I was set in a career in music. That's all I wanted to do. And music did what I thought any self-respecting religion ought to do. Um, it provided a social life, emotional experience. Um, a reason for getting up in the morning, hmm. uh, intellectual interest, uh, physical exercise, it, you know, provided the whole thing. Why would you need Christianity? And then it was when I was about 18 or 19, a school friend called Alan Torrance in, um, started speaking very directly about the Christian faith to me. And we were at university together by then. And he introduced me to his father, who was a lecturer in theology. And I went along to hear his dad lecture. And although I didn't understand, and a word of what he said, he had something that I didn't have, and I, and I knew it. There was a, there was just he was alive with something, and I thought, well, whatever he's on, I wouldn't mind some of that. Huh. Um, and then I discovered the message in the New Testament, a message of grace, a message mm-hmm. that, that the Bible's not basically a book of commands. It's a, it's a love. It's the Bible is a, is a love letter from God, and I sensed reading the New Testament the extraordinary power of this this human being, this Jesus of Nazareth. And I'd had a kind of hazy knowledge of bits and pieces about Jesus before, but I'd never read any of the Gospels, let alone sure. the epistles. And then over the period of about three, three months or so, um, yeah, I felt grasped by grace. I felt I, I found myself praying. I started going to church again, and the whole, the whole thing came alive. What didn't happen for me, I didn't have some great existential experience of guilt or need. Um, I think if you'd asked me then whether I was happy, I'd say, yeah, I'm pretty happy, content. I, I'm not aware I need anything. So a sense of sin or uh, whatever wasn't very strong then. It, it became much stronger after my conversion and not before it. Mm. But that's just the way it goes sometimes. That's the way it goes. I mean, the Apostle Paul, there's no sign he had a terrible existential crisis <laughs> before he was converted. He was quite merrily persecuting all these Christians. It didn't seem to trouble him that much until until he met. Christ's on the road to Damascus, and then it was very different. Mm. Have you read The Power and the Glory, the Graham Greene novel? Yes, I have, many years ago. So we, I, we're reading that for a podcast that we do right now, and I was actually thinking about the the lieutenant in that book who is persecuting the, the, the priests who's trying to eradicate them from, from the country. Interesting. And I was thinking about uh, St. Paul, which who you, who you just mentioned there, I was thinking about how this lieutenant seems to be, seems to believe he's... In, 
sort of pursuing or or working in support of some sort of a higher calling. And yes. I sometimes some people believe he's just sort of pure evil, but I don't read him that way. And so and so I think it's 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 interesting to think about Paul in the same way that perhaps he we, we don't really think about what he was like before he became well. Paul, no, right? a very good point. Was, I hadn't thought of that parallel. I must go back. I must go back to the novel. I think he. Uh, Yes, terrible acts are committed in the name of those who really do believe they're doing good yeah. and and indeed serving God directly. I mean, those who crucified Jesus, the, the Jewish leaders, really believed they, that they were serving God. Uh, we just need to remember that. Um, and uh, they, they weren't evil people through and through in any, in any obvious sense at all. They're very prayerful, very devout, very devoted to God. Um, but that devotion become very twisted, sadly, and so that's uh, that's a very interesting thing. I must I must look that up again. Okay, so let's take a step back, then. We could we could talk about Graham Greene novels, I'm sure, for a long time. Um, <laughs> do you said that you your your friend's father lectured, and that you sort of you saw that he had something that you you wanted, and then that led you towards towards a deepening um, of your faith. Where did the the connection with music began to tie in? Was there something about the music that you were experiencing in the church that helped deepen that faith? Or as your faith was growing, were you beginning to pursue um, the intersection of the church and music um, because of your love of music? I I was immersed in music, of course. And then on coming to faith, that that, that provoked a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first, the first thing is, um, do you want to be a musician for the rest of your life? I thought, well, Yes, I do want to be a musician, but I felt a very strong call to ordination in church very early on hmm. um, and pursued that. And then began. Then I, I studied theology up in Aberdeen University and then trained for ordination in the Church of England and was ordained, worked in a parish. So that trajectory was, was established very early on after, after coming to Christ. Hmm. But then during that time, I think, now, wait a minute, what's, what, where on earth is music? fit into all this and what the part music played. Now, really, I think there were three ways in which that developed. The earliest one was obviously to think about music and worship. A lot of my musical friends, uh, particularly those who weren't Christians, said, well, this is great. You'll be able to write hymns for the church uh, and songs for the church. And that's great. And I've done a lot of stuff in music and worship. And I believe in, in music as a crucial part of um, the activity of worship. But that wasn't, but I thought there must be a little bit more to it than this, surely. Hmm. So it's then that I started thinking in terms of what I kind of broadly call a theology of music. That is when you ask, what, is, what are the great truths of the Christian faith have to offer to the way we listen to music, hear it, and practice it? At that time, there was very little written on that. We're living in a very different era now. There's an extraordinary amount that's been um, churning out. But back then, this was the late 70s and 80s, it was pretty hard to make any connections between, say, the Christian doctrine of creation and the making of music or musical structures and the the structure of the gospel between cross and resurrection and tension and resolution in music, all the things I've been sort of exploring since. There was really very little of that stuff going on. So it was... was, um, it felt a bit lonely at the time, but I knew it would it would happen eventually. You know, I knew it was just a question of time. So that's I began working on a theology of music or theology of the arts first of all, and then more specifically music 
over the years, and that turned into a PhD. And then the other way in which it's developed is, we kind of hinted at earlier, is when music itself is used to help you do theology better. That is, you're not asking so much what theology gives to music, but what music gives to theology. How can music help us think through more faithfully the great truths and doctrines of the Christian faith? Mm. And that, that's been an exciting discovery, and I think very important educationally. The reason that that came about was because I was teaching, after I'd worked in a parish, I came back to Cambridge to teach theology in a seminary here, and I, I began teaching um, basic Christian doctrine, the, the creeds of the faith. And I began over and over again, if, if there was a piano there or any kind of music playing apparatus, I began again and again to see how powerful music was <laughs> as a way of helping students explore and think through and access those truths in very fresh ways. So when it came to the Trinity, for instance, I've, I found uh, the musical models of the Trinity were very much more powerful, as I believe they are, than visual models. And that's because of the way we hear sounds. We hear three notes of a chord, for instance. We hear those hmm. um, occupying the same oral space, our, our heard space, all at the same time. They don't get in each other's ways. Or they, then you don't hear them alongside each other. They don't just allow each other room. They're all in the same space, and yet you hear them as distinct. But you can't do that with the eye. You can't see three things in the same place at the same time as three things. Uh, it's just not the way our visual perception operates, but it's certainly the way that our hearing operates. And once you then you begin to explore oral models of the Trinity, um, all sorts of things in the New Testament suddenly make much more sense. And the Trinity becomes not a problem to be solved, but a, a reality to be enjoyed, which is what the Doctrine of Trinity was mm. really all about. It was it was articulating a wonderful experience. It wasn't it wasn't trying to make things hard or or work up you know bizarre intellectual puzzles. So that's it. Out of my experience of teaching in education, my enthusiasm for teaching that that I began to draw more and more on music, and I still believe music has ways of getting through to people, as we were saying earlier, uh, like nothing else. Do you think that? An exploration of theology through music could help us avoid heresies <laughs> because you were just talking about the Trinity, for example. Yeah. And I was thinking about how when people try to explain it, it leads into all sorts of, um, say, accidental <laughs> heresies as you're trying to, a very good to point. explain it. You know, ways of explaining that the church is, the church fathers, for example, decided were were heretical but it will, but if it can be incarnated or expressed through some sort of musical form yeah is that a, can we avoid the heresies by doing that i think i mean there's no guarantee against heresy you've still got to be oriented to scripture sure. obviously and you're sure. still working in the church or whatever but no i think i mean the trinity is a very good example that i think um thinking about the trinity through music can save you can make it much less easy to fall into certain kinds of um, heresy. For instance, I mean, classically, mm -hmm. if you're going to work with the eye alone um, and try to do threeness and oneness together, you, you're very likely to merge, you'll merge them into a kind of bland oneness, the three objects that you're picturing, and that's a kind of Unitarianism. Or you end up with something like tritheism with three separate circles or whatever. You can have overlapping mm -hmm. circles, but then that 
that suggests that there's a bit of the father or the bit of the son that has nothing to do with the others, <laughs> which again is, right. is again is right. heretical. Um, you know, you can map every major heresy of the Trinity onto a visual model of the Trinity very, very quickly, very easily. But you see, none of those things I've just described apply to the oral perception of a three-note chord. And so already mm-hmm. you're into a different way of, of perceiving, well, the world and, um, and of the Trinity. So I don't think the music, no, I'm not suggesting we all play Chopin nocturnes. You know, we, we never have heresy in the church. <laughs> but, but there's no doubt I have managed, I do, I do believe, thinking through music can circumvent many of the problems the church has had with something like the Trinity. And the same applies, I think, to the two natures of Christ and, frankly, all sorts of mm-hmm. other things. I mean, take the relation between God and the world, for instance. The Christian wants to say that the more God is involved in the world, the more the world will be free to be itself. That's the paradox of the Christian faith. The greater God's involvement with the world, the more, the more itself it becomes. And that's a very hard thing to explain or to understand because we will naturally think, well, the more God's involved with the world, the less free it'll be, the less room it'll have to be itself, which is a visual way of, a very visual way of thinking. You know, two things can't be in the same space at the same time. But if you think in terms of the resonance of one string with another, you know, one string setting off another, uh, freeing another string to vibrate, then you're in a different world. Then, then it's the more of one string, the more of the other, not the less of it. The more God is active, the, the more the other will be active. And then you can apply that to human relations as well. The more we give ourselves away to the other, another person, the more that person will become themselves. That's exactly what one string setting off another is doing. It's giving its sound away to the other so that the other can be the string it was created to be. Mm. You know, these are just simple models just lying out there in front of us. (laughs) I was thinking, as you were speaking, it was striking me that that in a way, don't we kind of run into some of the, the problems that we're trying to avoid by playing music when we try to um, express what's happening within our subconscious when we're listening to music. Mm. So if we're trying to explore the Trinity um, and we're trying to do that through music and we start trying to identify identify the metaphor that is the way music works yes. so that our subconscious can understand or so that our conscious can understand what our subconscious sort of knows without needing to name That's it. That's right, yeah. Are we then running into the same problems that we're trying to avoid? Uh Sorry, David, I haven't quite got you on that last bit. How would, do you mean that you might create new problems? Yes, yes. I'm, I'm, not, in, I'm not even sure that I know what I'm asking entirely. <laughs> um, I mean, if any, if, every model brings, brings its dangers. And with the musical model, there, there are disanalogies, clearly. Um, we, you know, we have to be careful. But that applies to any model that you use. It applies to any concept, any idea that you have in your head. It applies to any word or any picture that every model is adequate for some purposes, but not for all. Like a map, if you think about it, a map is adequate for some purposes. It'll get you some things, but it won't tell you lots of other things. And it's the same, it's the same with these things as well. So uh, if, we, if we're going to use these musical models or this musical way of thinking, we have to be aware of the dangers as well as the opportunities. Yeah. Hmm. Seems like for, for so much of, well, let's say at least the, the last couple centuries, Christian the world of Christian music um, and Christian musicians has has set out to not incarnate things so much, but to sing songs about theology. Mm. Um, and would you, where would you say is the role of of that of of 
the song about the, the theological point that we're trying to make, whether that's a hymn or it's what we're seeing in contemporary Christian music where, you know, I mean, even the, even ancient liturgies are, 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 they're modeling things, but they're also expressing truths and ideas yeah. um, through the words and things like through that. Through the words, Where's yeah. the balance between? Um, it's important to keep that balance. I mean, I'd say as far as words and music are concerned, you need to be very aware as far as you can of what the words are saying and what they're not saying. People do get away with seeing the most extraordinary nonsense sometimes in churches or else, or else things that, that, <laughs> that I don't understand, certainly, and, and I'm surprised if many others do. I mean, comprehensible or slightly archaic or weird things. Um, so obviously words matter. Or just nonsense. Or pure, pure nonsense, exactly. Um, so obviously the words matter. But I think we need to be realistic and say that the music, uh, as it were, carries its own messages as well, or at least it's evoking things, it's creating moods, it's stimulating emotions, it's doing all sorts of things along with those words. So music can, for instance, you can have the most perfectly orthodox words, but if you set it to music of a certain sort, you can draw attention to some things about those words you may not want to draw attention to, or you may, yeah, you may misinterpret the words as a result. An example, if I had a piano here, I would explain that pretty quickly um, by just changing the tune of some hymns. And you hear the words, the same words, yeah, the same words, but they have very different inflections, almost different meanings because of the music that you put to them. So we need to be aware, mm -hmm. of, aware of that. Now, music doesn't operate, in, of course, in the same way as language. It doesn't designate things precisely. It doesn't point to things. You can't, do with, you can't say this is a table with music. Um, so it can't be anything like as precise in designating things, but it can be pretty precise on the emotional front, on the affective front. It can, it can connote things or evoke things very, very powerfully. Um, that incidentally is why you have to be careful if you put some words to some music. Uh, so that music may have particular associations that you don't, you don't want to associate, <laughs> don't want to put to, to particular words. Mm -hmm. So to come back to your question, the question of balance, yes, it is. You need to think words and music, both of them. And what are they doing together? What happens when you put them together? A lot of, a lot of people will choose hymns mainly because of their lyrics and they think that music will just kind of fall into place. And then they wonder why it doesn't work, you know, or people don't get the message. And I think the reason why we do sing such nonsense sometimes in churches is because we think, oh, well, hey, it's, you're thinking it's a great tune. You know, I love the tune. Never mind about the words. I think, frankly, a lot of people in churches are going for music much more than the words. Um, it just sort of carries them off into some, to some yeah. mood. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's the case. Um, and, and we've got to be realistic. Many people, perhaps in higher church traditions, you know, more of the kind of choral traditions with, with rope choirs and so forth, many people will be going more for the music than anything that's said directly. Um, mm -hmm. I, I tend to say, well, at least they're there. I mean, it's a possibility. It's a start. But that's on its own. Music just taking you into, you know, giving you a, a kind of warm, warm experience. That That's hardly enough in worship, I'd have thought. <laughs> mm. Well, this brings me to a question I did want to make sure that I asked you. You point out in, in your in your book and in a lot of your work, from, from what I can tell, that many Christians seem to create a dichotomy between doctrine and the arts or at least mm. emphasize one at the expense of the other. And your book, yep. your most recent book, um, 
certainly combats that idea. But why do you think that that instinct exists? And it seems know, like it's, it's something that Christians in particular tend towards. And I don't know if it's because we don't have enough headspace for both. It's a very good question. I think, well, there's people associate, I think one thing is they associate the doctrine with, uh, with the mind alone, with a kind of disembodied intellect. Mm. I think that's going on. And the doctrines then tend to become difficult things that you have to intellectually assent to. That, mm. th- that's it. So that's the kind of caricature on the on side. On the art side, people tend to think, well, the arts aren't, you know, don't tell the truth in any way. They're, they're, not, they're neither truthful or, or um, communicating any kind of falsity. They, they're merely subjective. They just tell you about what's inside a person's soul and no more and can't do anything else. And I think that's the reason I think we've lived in a culture, and that is, a, I think, a post-enlightenment split between a certain kind of intellectualism and a certain kind of emotionalism um, that I think probably we're beginning to get over in our culture, but is still there, and it's still sometimes there in in the churches. And it's terribly sad to to me because um, doctrine for me is thrilling because it concerns, yes, of course, beliefs, but beliefs that grew out of a very profound experience of worship and prayer and living the Christian life. That's how doctrines arose, where by real people um, living the Christian life and mm. praying and wor- praying to and worshiping God. So doctrine, properly understood, you know, is is embedded in life and affects life. So for me, when I was first taught doctrine, I was taught in such a way that I could see the relevance of it all almost from the beginning. Trouble is, this comes back to teaching, doesn't it? But if doctrine is taught in a kind of dry as dust or antiquarian or hyper-intellectual way, it's just a bunch of things that you've sort of got to believe and cross your fingers and hope you can still believe them by the end of the day, then that, that's a, a travesty what doctrine, I think, is about. Um, doctrines at their best free you to live the Christian life in a, in a fruitful and exciting way. And doctrines also at their best give you a fantastic vision of the world under Christ, a vision of its future and its origin mm. um, that that just trans, should transform the way you think about everything and the way you act in every part of your life. So it's a sadness to me. It's a sadness to me. And when I, when I teach doctrine, I, I do my best to try to teach it in obviously that way as a kind of in a life changing way. So then would you argue that the, that, that it's the arts that um, enable or encourage or empower the belief or faith in the doctrines? Is that how you would? Um, they can do. Yes. The arts can give you, um, the arts appear to have an extraordinary unitive power that is of holding head and heart together. Mm of integrating different facets of your personality. People, people have known that for a long time. Mm-hmm. They appeal, of course, to the body, as well as emotional life and the intellectual life. So I've often found it's through the arts that people will see very quickly the relationship between doctrine and life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, take, for instance, uh, I was thinking of Caravaggio's picture of the calling of St. Matthew, one of my favorite paintings when the extraordinary dramatic picture of Jesus calling Matthew 
the tax collector and the way the light is arranged and the figures and the costumes. I mean, it's just an extraordinary powerful. Now, it's not only a kind of, it's not even remotely a photographic depiction of what happened. That's not the point. What it's doing is you taking you into the drama of that calling and of Jesus bursting into that man's life such that he had to respond and say yes. Mm. Uh, And it makes you feel it. It makes you feel it. Yeah, in, in a very, I mean, Caravaggio is very kind of, he makes you feel the physicality of it. You know, the, the figures are very real and earthy and concrete. Mm-hmm. But it makes you feel at the emotional level and indeed at the level of the will. Uh, heck, if I was, if that was me, I'd have to get up and follow Jesus. Mm. So it's it's appealing to the whole of me, a picture like that. So then the doctrine, I don't well, I call it the doctrine of calling, should we call it a vocation or discipleship or whatever, sure, sure, yeah. suddenly comes alive. It's not that the doctrine is wrong or the words are wrong, but those words are suddenly, they turn from, from black and white into color. Hmm. Quite so, literally in that case. It's interesting that you mentioned that painting where I think you use the word as it's earthy, it, it brings it alive. Um, but then you look at, and we mentioned icons earlier, when you look at yeah. traditional iconography in the Eastern Church and you know the Eastern Rite Catholic Church, it's very, I wouldn't call it realistic in really any, I mean, it's in some ways it is, but it's very flat, you know? Yes, um, yeah. So in that but, case, I wouldn't say that I it's think bringing it alive. It's, no, no, ahead, you're, you're dead right. And that, that's, that's only one example. I mean, the visual art can do all sorts of can work in a hundred different ways. Now when it comes to the, to the icon, the Eastern Orthodox believer would say there that but face with that icon and allowing your eye to roam over it, um, you can commune directly with the reality that is being represented there. Mm. So if it's if it's the person of Christ, um, you will have a sense of Christ addressing you very directly. Now, it's not meant to be exact visual depiction. So, for instance, in icons, there are no shadows. Um, they're quite, quite explicit about that. But then if you begin to think of the symbolism of that, that's because in God there are no shadows, mm. because in the divine there are no shadows. There's no darkness in God. Mm. So when Christ looks like that at you without shadows, he's coming to you as it were as pure light. Mm. And so within that tradition of interpretation, it's a tradition, of course, it's a, it's a huge amount of symbolism there, color and all sure. the rest of it. Sure. Within yeah. that tradition, uh, that icon can can become the vehicle, the means, the uh, uh, they've called meat and windows um, onto the divine. And But that happens in a different way from the Caravaggio thing. That's a much sure. more direct representation, obviously. Sure, so sure. visual art can work in very, very different ways. And that, that indeed is a very good example of another way in which it operates. Well, I know you, you have to go here pretty soon. I have a, just a couple of questions for you if you have a moment. Sure. Another one I wanted to, to make sure to ask you was you, you point out, I believe in the introduction to A Peculiar Orthodoxy, that you have misgivings with the current state of Christian arts scholarship, despite some progress over the last 30 years. Um, And you Mm. say that you are concerned, I believe you said, with the liveliness of the resources being drawn on. What do you mean by this? And what resources would you think, or would you like to see um, uh, Christian arts scholars drawing on primarily? Are you talking about scripture when you say that? Uh, Yes, actually, I've forgotten that I'd use the word liveliness, <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> um, yes, I mean, I think primarily scripture. I, we're seeing, at least in this country and to a certain extent in the States, a huge revival of what's called the theological interpretation of scripture, which means that theologians who are concerned with doctrines and basic beliefs 
are returning more and more to Scripture in depth and reading it in detail and very, very closely, along with biblical scholars. And that's an incredibly encouraging sign because um, then the Bible can come in alive in ways that very often doesn't. Now, what I'm slightly saddened by is that all that literature, which is pouring out of, of that movement at the moment now, seems not to be taken up by those working in the theology and arts arena as much as it should be, I think. I don't want to, I'm not condemning every, every writer in the field, sure. anything, but, but there's extraordinary lack of attention to, to scriptural passages, frankly. I mean, just take, I was working through Ephesians 1 the other day, just take that extraordinary prayer of, of Paul, um, just it's kind of multicolored, um, extravagant, abundant vision. Um, why on earth, when we're speaking about, I don't know, the visual arts or music or any of these things, why don't we immerse ourselves in passages like that? And we really would be given extraordinary tools to, to think about the arts in fresh ways. That's what, I, what I'm missing, I think, above all. Mm. Um, well, the thing about Bible, the, uh, Rowan Williams once, I heard him say, when he was asked, what would you like theological students to learn above all? And he said, I want them to sense the pressure out of which Christianity burst. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and I thought it was, it was a powerful way of putting it that he, when you read the New Testament, don't read it like a bunch of settled documents written by people calmly deciding to write the New Testament. You're reading documents by people who felt a huge pressure on their lives that they couldn't quite explain and they couldn't quite get their minds around, but they had to write about. Mm. And the sad thing is that some people working in theology and they see the Bible as a kind of dead book of doctrines rather than a living testimony to a living experience. Mm. And I, th I think we could spend very much longer with biblical texts th th than we do. That's really what I was getting at, I think, there. Mm. Yeah, the scripture and Latin are in the same, the same place for many people as, as being dead. Do you, when it comes to... Yes, that's interesting. That's a very interesting analogy. I think that's the same thing, yeah. You've taught at university level, right? And you yes. and you have you mentioned um, before we started recording here. You mentioned to me that you have you raised four children. Um, yeah. When it comes to thinking about these things with young people, um, and thinking about the arts in particular, what what you're describing there—the idea of the the kind of interconnectedness of scripture and the arts and arts studies—and if you can answer this, you don't have to answer this in a in a very precise, but you can answer it in sort of a general way. How do you think that that should be, how would you recommend that we approach arts studies with students, with younger people in a way that can, can mm. be enlivened, can be enlivened by the scripture and can also enliven scripture for them. Um, that can keep it mm. being, um, as you, as people seem to think of it, I think there's a reason why people think that scripture is dead and it's probably because it hasn't come alive for them. Um, yeah at least partly. So is there a way that yep. we can enliven both the arts um, through scripture and scripture through the arts with our, with our students and with, you know, our children in our homes? That's, that's a very good way of putting it. I think I need to make clear, I've never been a, a school teacher. I have indeed brought up children. I've thought a bit about these things, but I'm certainly not an expert um, in the world of education at that level. But I think the kind of broad answer would be, yes, I'd be encouraged young people, young people to read poetry, fiction, listen to music, watch films or whatever. But, but I'd be encouraging them to ask gospel questions about it. I'd be encouraging them to ask, mm. 
What worldview is being recommended here? What virtues hmm. are being encouraged or exalted here? Or indeed, what vices? Uh, what can I learn about the gospel from this? Now, there are a lot of resources out there for that, particularly actually in the film and theology world, film and Christianity. Lots of, lots of books now showing how we can begin to ask what I call gospel questions about the films that we see. So that's one way um, in which I think that can happen. Um, because what you're doing then is you're asking people to, it's the, it's the theology for the arts. It's, you're asking, what does this extraordinary Christian worldview have to this, say to the way we perceive the arts and, re and receive them and indeed make them? And that's another thing I'd encourage people to make far more art, to make films, mm. to write stories. Indeed, try writing poetry. Try writing music, however banal it may sound initially. Just 10 minutes of effort in writing music will teach you vast amounts, however basic your skills may be. Um, don't just think of yourself as, as the one who always reads poetry or listens to music. Or uh, Try it out. Write a story. I think we should be telling our kids far more often to be to be writing fiction, to be imagining these worlds, but of course, to do it um, in the light of something they, they read that's Christian, uh, light of a Bible passage. Hmm. Um, C.S. Lewis, of course, I mean, the great models of all this, C.S. Lewis would be kind of classic example. There are plenty of others now. There are plenty of Christian writers, or theologically astute writers, writing fantastic stuff. Think of um, Alan Robinson, for instance, mm -hmm. who's amazingly informed theologically. And writing, writing remarkable stuff for a Flannery O'Connor. Mm. Well, there's a, there's a vast amount of stuff out there, and the trouble is our culture is just swamped with very often, frankly, um, how can I put it, superficial uh, material that is designed to give you a quick fix and the kind of instant gratification. Mm. Well, we need to be helping our young people to say that the best things in life don't usually come that way. They come by giving a book the time to speak to you, giving a piece of music time to do its work on you, hmm. giving a film time so that you really are made to think about it afterwards and not just go on to the next thing. Hmm. Does that make sense? It does. When I was in, in college, I remember I studied a lot of fiction writing and a lot of um, film studies. And I remember the courses that I took that were about you know, how to make, you know, there are film production courses or yeah. uh, craft courses on, you know, fiction writing, really getting into the craft of it. I remember the way it changed my perspective as I was thinking about other people's work. There's something, um, there's some, something orienting about the, the creative act itself that, that causes Absolutely. us to slow, to slow down when we're experiencing other people's arts. And there's something spiritual about the act of creativity in and of itself. Of course. Of course, very much. You're bringing about something new um, that didn't exist before. And it's a very exciting thing to do. No, I, I, I remember once going to a lecture on, it was meant to be on sort of film and theology, but basically what he did was he just took five minutes of a, I think it was a Hitchcock classic. And he said, do you see all that's gone into those five minutes? So he just took us almost frame by frame, <laughs> you know, lighting and set and positioning and voice and all sorts and tone. And but my goodness, that's a lot in five minutes. And and his point being, if you're if you're serious as a Christian filmmaker, you need to learn 
these techniques, and yes, of course, turn them towards the gospel. Yes, of course, um, think them all through from a Christian perspective. Um, but the trouble is, a lot of Christian art is just is lazy. It it it, it doesn't bother with these with these things, and that's that's a sad thing. Do you think that's because it's so? It's so much less about, say, vocation and so much more about just getting some very specific, narrow message across into the ideas. You exactly. Figure out the best way to do that the quickest way possible and get it out there. I'm afraid that's the trouble, that we're, we're captive to some kind of pragmatism that says, who cares about whether the music's any good? Just as you say, get the message across. But then you need to interrogate that. You need to say, well, what, what message is being got across? <laughs> if, it comes, <laughs> right. if it comes with lousy packaging, so to speak, mm. uh, the message itself has changed. You know, that's that's yeah. just the issue. Um, it's the arts are never just the varnish or the coat or the vessel in which things are transmitted. They're part of the message. And if you to have good art is itself part of the message. Itself is glorifying God. That's the that's the way to counter that. But you're dead right. It's a kind of quick fix pragmatism. I'm so sorry, David. I think I'm going to have to go. You know, I was going to say, thank you for your time. I'm sure we could talk about jazz or something like that for a long time. But uh, thank you for your time and, and thank you for joining me. Not at all. Thank you, David. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.